London, the big London. It's late summer, 1821. Michael Faraday, bookbinder turned scientist, is staring at a magnet. And if you listen closely, you'll hear the wheels whirring in his mind. Faraday lacked the formal schooling of the scientists he worked with. But in his case, that may have been a good thing. Faraday was using his unconventional training to ponder the strange, invisible power the magnet held. And he had an idea. He saw a source of that invisible power that his colleagues had missed. He imagined invisible lines of energy forming circles in a sort of field of energy. To test his theory, he dangled a wire near the magnet. As he introduced a small electrical current, the wire spun in sympathy with those invisible lines. Put simply, Faraday had just invented the electric motor. Not that the significance of his discovery was immediately obvious. There's a popular and almost certainly untrue story that Prime Minister Gladstone asked Faraday what good his discovery would ever do. Why, Prime Minister, Faraday supposedly replied, someday you can tax it. From Faraday's research came a hypothesis. From his hypothesis came an experiment. From his experiment came a vital insight. And with that insight, the former bookbinder forever changed the world. My name is Terry O'Reilly. This is a show about the power of the insight. How the same process employed by Faraday is being used to shape commerce, art, and history. And now, insights are at the heart of the world's $80 billion a year marketing industry. You'll understand why those who've mastered the art of gleaning insights have become the new kings and kingmakers in the age of persuasion. Read my lips. I've fallen and I can't get up. Don't be a square. The only thing we have to fear is... Mrs. Ginger Shingler of Arvada, Colorado. She is not and never has been a television actress. And now, Terry O'Reilly and the Age of Persuasion. All the humanity... Cops, Dyson's, Menses... It's that simple. Let's go get it on. Let's get it on. Let's get it on. Don't let the whole Marvin Gaye motif fool you. Just cause they were hot just like an oven didn't mean they gave a lot of lovin' back in the 1992 presidential election. Incumbent President George Herbert Walker Bush was riding the wave of 90% approval following the first Gulf War. Independent candidate Ross Perot the folksy dot-com billionaire would awe shucks his way to almost 18% of the popular vote. Perhaps the most intriguing candidate, though, was Arkansas Governor William Jefferson Clinton. Where the president was good on TV, the governor was better. But there was one more aspect to the Clinton campaign that would put it over the top. Clinton's message. 
it was clear in his campaign ads. Clinton's balanced 12 budgets and they've proposed a new plan investing in people. It was clear in his attack ads. Because George Bush has had the worst economic record of any president in 50 years. Clinton was campaigning on the economy. As issues go, it was a gimme. It was a time of economic recession, traditionally a bad time for incumbent leaders. Legend has it that in Clinton's campaign office in Little Rock, Arkansas, strategist James Carville had written a three-line manifesto on a whiteboard, intended for campaign eyes only. The first read, change versus more of the same. The third read, don't forget health care. The second has become part of political folklore, the economy stupid, a phrase later popularized as, it's the economy stupid. It wasn't a strategy, or a slogan, or a fragment of research. It was an insight. A reminder that, in a recession, a president looked bad and challengers looked good. Stupid was a playful reminder never to overlook the fact that this insight was the most obvious, most powerful arrow in their quiver. For over a century, the marketing world has trumpeted slogans and jingles and positioning statements and buzz phrases. But rarely is credit given to the insight, that one precious piece of information that makes so many great messages possible. Find the right insight, and there's no telling where it'll take you. I, William Jefferson Clinton, do Solomon Square. It's one of the oldest in-jokes in my business. Any of us who presented a print or visual idea to a client might slave over our research and agonize over the right concept. Designers might pour countless hours into the tiniest detail of its look. And despite this, I can't tell you how often the client responds, I like it, but could you make the logo bigger? Could you make the logo bigger. In radio, it's akin to asking that the spot be somehow made louder than others, or that the name of the product be stuffed into the script as many times as humanly possible. It's the marketing equivalent of flagging down one of the world's great chefs and saying, Chef, this baked petivier of quail's breast and forest mushrooms is to die for. And then adding, You got any ketchup? Don't get me wrong, bigger logos and louder ads might have their place. But there are subtler, even more effective ways to relate a brand to a consumer. And they hinge on the insight, the one key piece of information on which an entire campaign can rest. Welcome to Very Gigantic Wireless. Hi, I know with Singular Nation I never pay long distance and never pay roaming. Is that true of your nationwide calling plan? Yes, that is true. Asterisk. Excuse me? It is true that with Singular Nation you never pay long distance and never pay roaming. Yeah, but in your plan do I pay for long distance or roaming? You never pay long distance and never pay roaming. Oh. Asterisk. You did say asterisk. I did not. Parentheses, yes I did. Hey. Close parentheses. Yeah, but I... With our plan you never pay roaming or long distance. Great. Fine print, yes you do. If itching persists, see your doctor. Itching? Oh, I'm sorry. That's not our fine print. That's the fine print on my antibacterial cream. Ew. So what you're telling me is, one, you have a rash, and two, unlike Singular Nation, you do charge me for long distance and roaming. Yes. Dot, dot, dot. Please don't hurt me. The key to that spot wasn't that it mentions the client's name a given number of times, or its volume. That spot was about an insight, 
that people are wary of fine print and hidden conditions offered by some cell phone companies. To its credit, that spot remains focused on that single insight, resisting the urge to clutter the message with boasting about clear signals or competitive rates. It's also a great illustration of the difference between an insight and an idea. While the insight is the customer's aversion to fine print, the idea, asterisk, is the creative device of the man speaking, parentheses, in fine print, close parentheses. Where an idea might be a single ad, an insight might make a hundred ads possible. Throughout time, the key to great storytelling has been to withhold a story insight until just the right moment. I am your father. It was a Hardeman operation. Conservant, it's, it's a cookbook. But you don't understand, Osgood. Uh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. For our purpose, let's say an insight is an understanding of relationships that shed light on or help solve a problem. A definition that would become especially important in the age of persuasion. Phil Dusenberry is among the giants of my business. Former chairman of BBDO Advertising New York and author of a wonderful book called then we set his hair on fire. It's a marvelous collection of war stories, including his account of working with Michael Jackson on his famous Pepsi campaign, which included, of course, the unplanned combustion of Mr. Jackson's hair. It's a book about war stories and about insights, like the one revealed to him the day he visited the White House. He was part of an ad hoc team assembled to help re-elect Ronald Reagan. The group was sitting nervously, pondering the issues that might dictate the 1984 campaign, when a door swung open. And a familiar voice said, I understand you guys are selling soap, and I thought you'd like to see the bar. Duesenberry would learn that President Reagan always had a one-liner when entering a meeting, probably to break tension. But in that moment, Ronald Reagan also presented an insight. In the upcoming campaign, the president was the message. The election wouldn't be about economics or foreign policy or welfare reform. It would be about personality. The advantage, of course, was Reagan's awareness of his value as a commodity an insight he'd gleaned long before he made Hellcats of the Navy with future First Lady Nancy Davis. Must be a big push this time, Ace. The Admiral told me not to tell. The Admiral should have told me not to worry. I thought we'd settled all that about you and me. It won't stay settled, Case. Not until you tell me you stopped caring. Reagan had mastered the rudiments of persuasion through many years as a TV host and spokesman. Just a dab. Removes paint, grease, tar, carbon, ink, even plain dirt. An interesting side note. Duesenberry notes that Walter Mondale's Democrats were running a negative campaign. In this building, Mr. Reagan's people are borrowing the money that's putting each of us $18,000 into debt. Duesenberry saw that as an advantage. 
Contrary to the conventional wisdom of today, Duesenberry writes, positive beats negative every time in the ad effectiveness book. Contrast the tone of that ad with this. In my lifetime, we've faced two world wars, a war in Korea, and then Vietnam. And I know this, I want our children never to have to face another. In November 1984, on the strength of an insight from the candidate himself, positive beat negative by more than 16 million votes. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state? Duesenberry goes on to describe another insight, this gleaned by Reagan's media guru, Mike Deaver. Early in Reagan's presidency, Deaver found the White House reacting to the daily media cycle. Then it occurred to him. The White House knew the president's schedule months in advance. Instead of working backwards and reacting to events, why not set the news agenda by choosing a single message and repeatedly working it, often in harmony with a key speech or trip? His insight was he could control the news instead of having it control the White House. As Duesenberry notes, this was entirely counterintuitive, and it helped cement the Reagan team's reputation for media mastery. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Now, here's the thing. A spot, even a limited campaign, can work without an insight, but it'll likely be a one-off, an idea with a short, bright shelf life. When it fades, the advertiser will have to start again from scratch. A solid insight, on the other hand, can support campaigns over the long haul. This is John Cameron Swayze for Timex. Over the years, you've seen Timex take a licking and keep on ticking. But how will Timex Marlin stand up to the full weight of an elephant? Timex built an empire on the insight that consumers want to watch they can count on in the teeth of everyday wear and tear. What time is it? Time to get a new Timex. Well, it worked in rehearsal. The road to a great insight begins with a tough slog over a mountain of research. Questions are asked about how people feel about a brand, who buys it, and who doesn't. Then comes analysis. People pour through the research asking why. Why has the product been successful? Why do consumers choose a rival's brand? Why did people love the product more two years ago than they do now? From analysis comes the tricky part, the insight, or several insights, or no insights, or occasionally the wrong insight. On rare, joyous occasions, an insight might not even be necessary. Invent a car that runs on cold fusion, or boxer shorts that don't ride up, and your job is simply to trumpet the obvious benefit of your product over its rivals. But for most products, the problem is parity. Too many competitors with too little to separate them in the consumer's mind. I give you the wall of toothpaste or shampoo brands in your supermarket. In a world where so many brands look alike, the craft of persuasion is about differentiating your brand. Often, that involves finding some tool that makes your brand unique. And that, at its best, 
begins with an insight. See if you can read the insight that drives this brand. This is a travel advisory. Travelers headed for tropical beach destinations are being warned to avoid momentary lapses in judgment. Hot weather and the consumption of rum cocktails in the presence of a steel drum band may lead to disorientation and the desire to have your hair braided into vacation cornrows. While not only painful, vacation cornrows look redonkulous, leaving one's face stretched tighter than a bit of divorcee's. Without sunscreen, the exposed scalp may burn, then peel off in layers like baklava. If, after undergoing the braiding procedure, you begin using words or phrases like anything, hamon, spliff, or weedy jamming, seek medical attention immediately. Accessorizing your cornrows with beads, feathers, and or tiny seashells may even lead you to believe that you are a beautiful Nubian reggae princess. Do not be fooled. You are still a dental hygienist from Des Moines. Don't be a tourist. Take a journey into the unexpected. Tune into the Travel Channel. Travel Channel. Be a traveler. That's a funny, well-crafted piece of entertainment. Unless, of course, you're a dental hygienist from Des Moines. But it's also a crafty bit of brand building for the Travel Channel. And it's based on an important insight. The same insight gleaned by strange bedfellows William Shatner and Joe Jackson on The Tonight Show. Because everybody hates a tourist. People love to travel, but they don't want to look like tourists. Using that insight, the Travel Channel promises useful travel information for people who don't want to look like, well, a dental hygienist from Des Moines. Funny thing about marketing insights, some are clearly more useful than others, but there is no right one, and there is no formula for gleaning them. In fact, some of the greatest marketing insights come from the wackiest places. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and this is the Age of Persuasion. On Labor Day 1995, 28-year-old Pierre Omidyar launched an auction website. He'd wanted the name EchoBay.com after the name of his consulting firm. When he discovered that the domain name was taken, he settled for eBay. A story circulated that Omidyar had concocted the site as a vehicle for his girlfriend, as a venue to buy and sell her beloved Pez dispensers. Sometime later, it was revealed that the story was the product of an overzealous PR drive to generate interest in the website. For the purpose of understanding insights, the real story is much more interesting. Hey, well, all right, sir, here we go there, what are they going to give for? I have a $600 down here now, 10 and now, 25 and now, 35 and now, 50 and now, 60, will give me 60 It's a safe guess that Omidyar didn't fully grasp what he was onto as he sold the very first item on eBay. It was a broken laser pointer, and it sold for $14.83. Amazed, Omidyar contacted the buyer to ask if he realized the laser pointer was broken. The response? Oh yes, I'm a collector of broken laser pointers. From that came the insight that drives eBay, that the internet fills a void, creating a worldwide buy and sell community for almost anything. Yep, including Pez dispensers. As one venture capitalist put it, the genius of eBay is that there's no inventory, 
just a mailbox full of checks. Today, the folks at Forbes estimate Piero Midyar's personal fortune at some $8.8 billion. Oh my God! After 9-11, the city of New York needed a boost. It needed to reinstill confidence among residents, investors, and tourists. This led to an insight first gleaned in the famous I Love New York campaign decades earlier and leveraged in the New York Miracle campaign. These little town blues are melting away. People didn't just love New York, with apologies to Donna Summer, they loved to love New York. Major celebrities lined up for a chance to appear in a spot. Woody Allen, Henry Kissinger, and together in the middle of Times Square, the stars of every major show on Broadway. Come to New York and let's go on with the show. Hey there, USA, see the Chevrolet. The spectacular's the word that fits it best. Chevrolet had cut its teeth as the great American automobile until the 70s, when Japanese cars left North Americans with an inferiority complex. In the 80s, Chevrolet bounced back with an insight about patriotism. Like those who love to love New York, Chevy, and Ronald Reagan for that matter, Glean that Americans wanted to be proud again. Listen to the heartbeat of America. So rather than sell fuel efficiency or design or economy, Chevy sold Americana. Chevy, like President Reagan, sought to stir a dormant patriotism. In 2K, Mel Gibson and Helen Hunt made the picture What Women Want, about a man given the sudden power to hear women's thoughts. It's a fun story, but with one glaring flaw. In the real world, people, women and otherwise, don't always know what they want. For that, we look to the gurus of insight. Consider Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway, a man worth somewhere north of $50 billion. For decades, Flocks of hungry investors have followed Mr. Buffett, praying he might drop some insightful crumbs to sustain them. As the investment world was busy fawning over the new generation of dot-coms, tossing money at the internet by the truckload, Buffett chose to invest heavily in Gillette. Asked why he would back such a sleepy old stock, Buffett noted that every night, as he goes to bed, Two billion men are growing facial hair while he sleeps. That's an insight. He's investing in a company whose product many men have to use every day, then throw away. File that under C for cha-ching. Insights are amazing and infuriating because they tend to be unique to a given situation at a given time under given circumstances which is why the gurus of insight don't tend to publish how-to books or impart their wisdom with a paint-by-number simplicity. They can't, because there's no template for gleaning insights. Warren Buffett can't teach you or me to do what he does. Neither could James Carville or Phil Dusenberry or Sherlock Holmes, for that matter. For those of us in the insight business, 
It's an always tedious process beginning with homework. Then, on the fertile ground of analysis, we pray for that ping moment when an eco-friendly, low-wattage fluorescent bulb appears over our heads with the insight that saves our skin. One such insight sustained a number of brands over the years. It's based on the principle of 80-20, meaning that 80% of your business comes from just 20% of your customers. That insight suggests that you should direct most of your marketing to upsell or encourage more sales from that core of loyal customers. In business speak, your ads become a warm call instead of a cold call. Insights are the nucleus of the big idea. They provide the foundation for any lasting expression. Imagine if Van Gogh had no insight before he painted Starry Night. Arthur Miller without insight as he drafted Death of a Salesman. Or John Lennon without insight when he wrote Imagine. The insight is the launching pad for great communication. For an artist, it can mean a lasting place in the popular psyche. To a public figure, insights can make history. In the business of persuasion, insights are bread and butter. A funny line, a grabby character, or an infectious melody makes an ad memorable, but it's the insight that makes it matter. When I ask clients for a key insight into their brand, to articulate what separates them from the competition, they often have no answer. Brand insights are elusive even to those who create a product. Insights are but one part of a bigger process. Advertising is incredibly hard to do well because so many things can go wrong. Research can be faulty. The analysis might be wrong. An insight might be wobbly or too weak. Or, often, it's never revealed. And that's just the design stage. Even the most brilliant insight and unsinkable strategy still leave a campaign at the mercy of its execution where any of a thousand things can sink it. See also Titanic HMS. Still, it's the insight that separates the wheat from the chaff in my business. There isn't a big player in the game who would dare approach a major campaign without, at some point, reminding herself, it's the insight, stupid, in the age of persuasion. The Age of Persuasion is created and written by Terry O'Reilly and Mike Tennant. Hey, uh, Linda, could you make our names louder than the other credits? <clears throat> by Terry O'Reilly and Mike Tennant. Oh, that's way better. Oh, hell yes. I like that. Engineer Keith Oman, who's nursing a theory that 80% of the work is done by 100% of the Swedish engineers. <laughs> Title music by Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre. The one team to hire when you're hiring more than one. The Age of Persuasion is created for CBC Radio by Pirate Radio and Television Toronto.